0: If you would turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Colossians. Pastor Tim so inspired me last week that I decided we could surprise Peter and finish the book in four weeks. (laughs) Wouldn't that be great if he came back and he said, you know, we made it through. Um, No, I I am not being serious, but I am being serious about starting with Colossians chapter one. I want to read a, a passage out of there. We're gonna then springboard from there into the book of Jonah. I'm glad that we were able to read all of chapter one this morning. Listen to Colossians 1, verse five. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you As Paul writes to the Colossians, he's reminding them of how the gospel came to the pagan city of Colossae. Often we forget how the gospel has traveled, how it's gone from city to city around the world right to this place called Hurricane. And God brought the gospel to Colossae through his servant Epaphras, or Epaphras as I'm remembering from, again, last week. And Epaphos came with a message, a message of judgment and salvation, judgment for sin, and yet God's provision of salvation. And they believed this hope of the gospel in Christ Jesus, that there is forgiveness. And as they turned from their own sin and their own idolatry, they were saved, and God birthed a church in Colossae. And the gospel continued to go forth from there. Much like in our story today of another man, Jonah, who will be tasked with going into a pagan city and proclaiming a message of coming judgment, making known the God who is God over the nations. Paul states in Colossians 1 that this gospel is growing in the whole world at times that we are tempted to think that this really began at Pentecost, and I'm so thankful that we read from Acts chapter 2, because there is this beautiful explosion at Pentecost of the gospel going into the nations. In fact, God gathering the nations, and then the nations hearing with their own ears this good news of the gospel. It's the reversal of Babel. Babel, the languages are spread, and at Pentecost, that the nations are back and they're all hearing it as it's spoken. And that ties into an incredible story that goes all the way back to the beginning because from the beginning, it has been a global story. Right in Genesis 1, as God commanded Adam and Eve to exercise dominion over the earth and to fill it, really the offspring of God filling the earth offspring of adam and eve those who would be children of god but at the fall we find that seeming to be impossible because sin has infiltrated god's beautiful and perfect world and yet as we know the story we know that that didn't catch god off guard because it has always been a plan even before the foundation of the world As Ephesians 1 reminds us that there is an adoption planned before the world began. As 2 Timothy 1 says, there was grace prepared for sinners from before the foundation of the world. And so all of this is happening according to the plan and purpose of God. And we find then, as people begin to multiply and wickedness multiplies on the earth, there is a global judgment even as Noah proclaims salvation and God's means of provision and the picture of the ark and well, the reality of the ark, but what the ark is pointing ahead to. And then at Babel again, as Noah's offspring multiply and the nations are scattered and the languages are scattered, God is at work among those nations. And he raises up a man, Abraham. Do You remember what he told him? It is through you that all the families of the earth will be blessed. And he made him the the promises, and he entered into covenant with him. And this will come through Abraham. And God is showing so clearly through Abraham that, that again, he reveals himself. He makes known this glorious good news of this promise to come through his people. And even as they travel down into Egypt, God is revealing himself to the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh. Pharaoh at that time. And the gospel goes, this good news of this God who has promised salvation to those who are in slavery. And it goes out. The Egyptians hear it. And then the Canaanites and the people of the land hear it. And it just continues to go. We find then, even as Israel takes the land, even through their failures, the failures of the judges, God yet works despite them. And he points ahead to the need of a greater deliverer who will yet come. And that leads into Saul, again, an imperfect leader who sets up David. And in the reign of David, there's a promise of an offspring who will rule. And we see this kingdom that will go beyond Jerusalem right into the the edges of the world, to the ends of the earth. But the offspring of David are not that king because they fail. But God is still working among the nations. And as we walk through the book of Kings, we see this happening. Even as Solomon builds the temple, and you find the nations coming, even from Ethiopia and Africa, they're coming and they're hearing of this God, Yahweh. And they go back into their own nations, proclaiming that the God of Israel is the God of the earth. It's fantastic to see the message moving forward. But then as the kings fail, as we follow the narrative of 2 Kings, we see that God is working right through Elijah and then through Elisha. In 2 Kings chapter 5 up through chapter 13, we find God interacting outside of Israel to the the nation of Syria. And God is revealing himself to the commander of the Syrian army, Naaman, And then to Ben-Hadad. And that leads us into 2 Kings chapter 13, when Elisha dies. And it's in 2 Kings 14 that this prophet comes on the scene during a time of great turmoil in Judah and Israel. In fact, the nation is suffering. They're suffering because of their own sin. Some who are walking righteous are suffering because of the sins of others. And some are suffering because of other nations coming and doing terrible things to them: pillaging, stealing, murdering, kidnapping. And the, the nation that is leading in this is this terrible nation, Assyria. And yet at this time in Second Kings 14, God speaks through this prophet named Jonah, and he prophesies a restoration of land to Israel in the midst of their disobedience. And it is this Jonah then that is going to show us God's work almost to the next tier of nations, which will be Assyria, the most powerful nation of that day. And of course, as we follow the storyline after Jonah and we walk it through, we end up getting then to the Babylonians and we see God working through Daniel and it goes on and on and on then to Greece and to Rome and Jesus comes and here we are. So that's a big story. But we're gonna enter into it right there in that place where Jonah has come and where God is speaking to his people through this prophet. And that leads us into Jonah chapter one. And as we come into this story, a lot of us suffer from over-familiarity with the kid's story Jonah, and we see a picture on the, on the wall of a giant whale and immediately think of a kid's book, and yet we desperately need the message of the book of Jonah. So would you pray with me as we come into our passage today that God would give us fresh eyes to see his word and that he would speak to our hearts today. Father, blessed be your name, our great, holy, awesome King. Lord, you rule over the world, and the nations are yours. They always have been, and they always will be. Even as we watch this gospel go forth in and through the nations, Lord, we want to know what it means to live before you right here in Hurricane. St. Albans, Huntington, Charleston, all around this place. As we gather here, Father, as as this body, would you wash your bride today and make her beautiful? God, would you draw out what we need to see and give us eyes to behold Jesus? Give us fresh eyes that your word would be precious to us. We pray for the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. God is a God who pursues people. And I love that about the book of Jonah. He's at work among the nations, and he passionately pursues people. The book of Jonah begins in chapter 1, verse 1, with just a basic introduction. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. This is different than the other prophets before, where it simply says... The word of the Lord came. The word of the Lord. It's it's a transitionary. Now the word of the Lord came to. It almost enters in as if we should be reading it as a part of a book, a bigger book. And that's because it is. It is a story within a story. And as we've already said, it fits within the narrative of first Kings, and yet it fits within a specific book structure in the Old Testament. We know Jonah as one of the minor prophets. And yet the Hebrew Bible would, would, doesn't use that language. In fact, the, the minor prophets are called the book of the 12 and they are read as one book. So you could just preach through all 12. That's the book of the 12. Jonah is the fifth book of the book of the 12. He comes immediately after Obadiah. And Obadiah is focusing on the nation of Edom and the judgment of the coming day of the Lord. Again, God judging The nations. After comes Micah, and Micah turns and looks at God's judgment of Israel and the hope of the ruler who will come, who will be born in Jerusalem. Micah is around the time of Isaiah, which interestingly, as we follow the narrative of kings, Isaiah is the next prophet that comes into the narrative. So there's this weaving of narrative and prophetic book together. They complement one another. And so Jonah is going to transition from, from Edom to Israel, and yet with a focus on Assyria. And so God tells him in verse two, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. If you have your Old Testament I almost said brains on, but that doesn't quite fit. Lens, there we go. Caps, yes. We have our Old Testament caps on. That language is, it reminds us of, of when God told Abraham that in Genesis 15, your offspring, your children's children will come back here, but not until the fourth or fifth, fourth generation, because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Or three chapters later in Genesis 18, when God says that the outcry against Sodom was so great that he was bringing judgment. And again, there's a consistent theme that God is very, very knowledgeable, perfectly at work among the nations. And he is working to bring salvation and judgment. And he judges sin and he sees the wickedness of the nations. And he is working a plan among those nations Right now, every nation, God knows. God knows. And for the Amorites, there was going to come a time when their sin would reach the place when God would bring judgment. With Sodom, their sin reached the place and God brought judgment. What we often forget with Sodom was that God had first brought salvation through Abram, He had revealed Himself prior to that judgment. That's an interesting pattern. And we will see that at work even in our story over these next four weeks. And so God calls Jonah to go to cry out against Nineveh because God has appointed a time of judgment. Verse 3 tells us that Jonah didn't speak, he didn't respond. He was struggling in his heart. We know that because we know the story, but he didn't, he didn't utter it like Habakkuk who utters his complaint against God. All it says is he rose and it's like the narrative just turns with Jonah because he flees. He flees to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Just as Adam and Eve sought to hide from the presence of the Lord after they sinned, so too is Jonah seeking to hide from the presence of the Lord. He knows he is walking in sin. He knows that this is disobedience and he wants to hide. He wants away from God's presence. And so what does he do? Well, he goes down to Joppa. Instead of going up, towards Assyria to obey God and to bring this message, he does the opposite. He goes down to the coast, gets on a, a ship, hires a place in that ship, and he wants to get as far away as he, as he can. And so if, 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 this is, if this is Israel and this is Assyria, Jonah's going over here as far away as he can, maybe three times as far away to go to Tarshish. And right away, we have to ask ourselves, can you hide from God's presence? And really, the, the text itself draws this out in verse 3. It almost has a poetic nature to it, if you have eyes to see it. I, I don't read Hebrew. I wish that I did. But it, just look at it even in English. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Okay, that's One. He went down to Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. See how that's almost sandwiched. And so there's this, there's this drawing of the reality of Jonah's rebellion, his disobedience to flee from the presence of God. But before we judge Jonah too harshly, we have to recognize And be humbled by the reality that we are Jonah. I am Jonah. Jonah's response reveals the the reality of the human heart, and at least three things here. Okay, first, our tendency, and Jonah's, is naturally to do the opposite of what God says, often with good excuses, at other times just blatant rebellion. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I know I've experienced it as a parent a thousand times, and even as a child. I could be emptying the garbage, and my dad wouldn't see me, and he could say, go empty the garbage, and I would set it down and say, do it yourself. Like, why? Suddenly, I don't want to empty it anymore just because you told me to empty it. Uh, has anybody experienced anything like that? It's our natural tendency. There's a flesh that rises up. And the second is behind every disobedience is a lie. It's a lie that we naturally, ultimately believe about God. Or a truth that we reject about God. It's either a, ultimately a lie that we believe about God or a truth that when confronted with it, we just reject it can't be. No. For example, in the garden, as the serpent tempted Adam and Eve, did God really say? He said, then he said to them, God knows in the day that you eat of it, this fruit, God knows that your eyes will be opened. You'll know good and evil like him, right? God knows. And so If you're Adam and Eve and you're hearing that, you are believing the lie ultimately that says God is withholding from us. He's a withholder. And at the core of that, ultimately, God is not good. Because if God were good and he were the great giver and the great protector, then there's no way we're gonna eat this fruit. And if they would test it according to God's word and believe God's truth, then there is no fall And yet their response is the human response. And they judge by their eyes and what they see and what they feel. Ultimately, believing the lie of God, the lie about God as the truth. And we are the same. And and here Jonah is confronted with what God desires. And yet he knows the truth about who God is. And we learn that later in the story. And it's because of the truth of God that he is going to reject what God tells him to do. I don't want this. I don't want to go to my enemies. And of course, there's good reason. Have you ever been sent to one who has caused you great turmoil and pain? Or among your people? I've sat in Uganda year after year with precious brothers and sisters from many different tribes in one room. And in that place, I hear story after story. Oh, This is what those people did to my people. Many of you know of the war in the north with Kony back in the the 2000s. When we first got there, Kony was very, very at work in Uganda. And Kony would come down and he would, besides just killing people, he would take children and make them child soldiers, often having them do terrible, terrible things. And I had some who were Acholi who suffered because of Coney sit in that room. And if you said to them, if God called you to go to Coney to to preach the gospel, would you do it? They would say, no. Coney deserves judgment. He does not even deserve the opportunity to repent. With what he has done to my people and my family, No. Jonah's not alone, and I don't know if any of us are any different if we were put in a similar situation, because that is a natural human response, and Jonah's saying, no, I will not go to those people, and so he flees, and he goes the other way. So what does God do? Can you thwart God's purposes? Can you hide from God's presence? Verse 4 tells us that Yahweh, the Lord, hurled a great wind upon the sea, and he brought such a storm, such a storm that the sailors are terrified. It says that the ship threatened to break up. One commentator said that that the the Hebrew, it's as if it's saying that the ship wanted to come apart, (laughs) right? It's it's like, I need to break up. I've got to come apart. That's how crazy the storm was. And of course, the mariners are scared to death. Now, any observer, if you heard it announced in the news, a wild storm came out of nowhere and rocked a boat in the Mediterranean Sea, Um, And yet we know so clearly that this isn't a random storm. Of course, the text tells us that it's Yahweh, but even the mariners, they understand this. They see that there's something not natural, and each one of them are crying out to their God. And what happens in the midst of difficulties in our lives? What happens in the midst of coming potential tragedy? We look deep and we cry out, Oh God, oh God, what have we done? God, why this thing? And the mariners are afraid and they're crying out to their gods. And, and th- again, this is the outflow of Babel. As the nations were spread and as languages were localized and as the name of God was being spoken in each language, th- the different nations took on their own God. And so this is our God and our God will fight your God. And, and, and which gods have power over the sea will worship those gods. And for mariners, very religious, they know that the gods can kill them on those dangerous waters. And so they're crying out. And it's so bad that they're throwing the cargo. They've got to lighten this ship. And that's a tough one because they're being paid. They have to deliver this. And yet their lives are at stake throughout the cargo. And then the text says, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down... And was fast asleep. Now as we listen to the steward, we're all scratching our heads going, "How in the world did he sleep in the midst of that storm?" And whether he had a gift of sleep, only one of my six kids had that gift to be able to sleep in the midst of a storm, uh, or it was a supernatural sleep. And we don't know. But what we do know is that Jonah has gone down as far as he can, into the belly of the ship to be away from the presence of God as he flees and he's out. The the prophet is asleep. And we also recognize that he's asleep physically and he's asleep spiritually because he doesn't know what's going on. Jonah is, for the most part, out of it. So verse six, the captain comes and says, what do you mean, O sleeper? And then look at what he says arise. It's the same verse, same word we heard in verse 2, as God said to Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh. The captain says, arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. How fascinating that the pagan captain is calling on God's prophet to rise up and to pray The mariners are praying. The pagan captain is praying. And Jonah's sleeping. And just as Jonah remained silent at God's command to go to Nineveh, he remains silent right here. God has spoken. Jonah's quiet. Pagan captain has spoken. Jonah's quiet. Pagan sailors are praying. Jonah remains quiet. Jonah has become like Nineveh. He has become the thing that he stands against. He just can't see it. He needs repentance. He is facing judgment for his own disobedient sin. He knows the God of heaven is God of earth and that God sees. He knows all the stories of the Bible of the Old Testament and God gives thought to people and yet he's silent And so what do they do what do they do as God's prophet remains quiet as they don't understand what is happening well verse 7 tells us that they said to one another well let's cast lots I mean, right? Let's find out on whose account this evil has come upon us because they recognize that this is a divine judgment. This is, this is going to take our lives. This is not good. And so they do. They cast lots. And what seems to be random, I don't know how they cast it on a ship. And again, as you picture the story, you've got to picture storm and, and crazy boat movement and, and, and they're casting these lots and it falls on Jonah. Jonah. And what seems to be a random storm, which isn't, God is sovereignly at work through the storm. And what seems to be a random lots are not random lots. God is sovereign and at work even through the lot. Which reminds us of Proverbs 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And it comes to, to Jonah. They said to him, tell us, please, right? On whose account has this evil come? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? I mean, they want to get as much information as they can. And you notice that Jonah doesn't answer the question of what is your occupation? (laughs) Imagine if he had started there, right? But every word that he does speak is so important. Look at verse nine. He said to them, I am a Hebrew. Okay, right away, he he, he is acknowledged as a part of the people of Israel. And again, these sailors are coming from Joppa. They know the land of Israel. It's not as if they've had no contact with Israelites. They have. I am a Hebrew, and I fear Yahweh, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, in the text is the Hebrew for Yahweh. It's the covenant name for God. That's who I fear. I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now, the text stops there, but it tells us at the end of verse 10 that the men knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. It doesn't give us that dialogue. It gives us this dialogue for a purpose. Even though we know he explained more. He's part of God's covenant people. He fears Yahweh, but God is the God of heaven who made the sea. God is not like these local gods. He is not contained to a geographical place. He is the God over all things and he's over the ocean. I mean, Jonah is just giving it. To them, and then he explains that he's fleeing from the presence of God. And look at verse 10. The men were exceedingly afraid. What is this you have done? You're fleeing from this God, the God who made the ocean? What have you done to us? It's amazing that they believe what Jonah has spoken about God because Jonah has spoken accurately about God. But they also see Jonah accurately because as they hear Jonah say, I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven. They know Jonah does not fear Yahweh, the God of heaven. As a prophet, he has grown being taught the fear of the Lord. He has been taught that he is, as a worshiper of Yahweh, one who fears Yahweh. He views himself as one who fears Yahweh, and yet he does not view himself accurately. Because truly, one who fears God is one who keeps his commands. To not keep God's commands is to not fear God. And you read through the Proverbs and you read through the Old Testament and that is clear over and over and over. And so Jonah is self-deceived in his speech. He doesn't see himself accurately. They see himself accurately. It is so much easier, brothers and sisters, to articulate truths about God and to think that we have all the right answers, all the knowledge of God and yet still have a wrong view of ourselves. Did you know that you can be right and be so wrong? My sons know they've heard me say that many times. What what you're saying can be right, but you can be so wrong. And that is the danger for Jonah. It's the danger for Keith. It's the danger for every one of us who sit here because others can often see clearly what we cannot see clearly, and that is why we desperately need the body. Pride and insecurity are death to the soul as it forces us to hide behind an intellectualism that is blind to the self. And Jonah is there. He's blind to his self, but he has the answers. And so what do the sailors do? Verse 11, they said, what shall we do to you? All right, how can we get the sea to quiet down? Because the sea is getting even worse and worse. Now, at this point, I want Jonah to say, because I, I truly do worship the God of heaven and I have sinned against him, I'm gonna repent right here, right now because God hears prayers of repentance. All right, and I'm gonna pray. And I'm actually a prophet, all right? Okay, and, and, and here's the truth. That's, that's what I want him to do. That would be beautiful. He could say, turn this ship around and head for Nineveh. All right, uh, he doesn't. What is his response? Just throw me overboard. That's not a natural response. <laughs> Sin makes you stupid, as my father-in-law so wisely has said many times. And this is Jonah's natural response. It's better to just throw me off. And the sailors, as a good West Virginia says, bless their hearts. They don't want to throw him overboard. It says in verse 13 that they rowed hard to get back to land. Because in their minds, it's like, okay, he's the problem. God is over the seas. Let's just get to land and we'll dump him off. And that's not going to work. And actually the storm gets worse. Verse 14. Listen to this. Therefore, they called out to Yahweh. You hear the difference? They didn't call out to their gods. Their gods are powerless to save. They've heard Jonah's message, and they have believed it. Or they would not call out to Yahweh. They are exercising faith. They believe this Yahweh is real, and he governs heaven and earth and the seas. And so they pray to him. Jonah has not prayed to Yahweh the pagan sailors are praying to yahweh o lord let us not perish for this man's life lay not on us innocent blood for you o yahweh have done as it pleased you there's three things god please don't let us die for this guy don't hold us guilty for his death because this is your sovereign hand and some look at this negatively and will say, well, yeah, they're just trying to put, put it on God. Like, right, God, we're blaming you. And I don't see that. I see this as a genuine prayer. God, you're sovereign over everything and you've done as it has pleased you. We've tried to row. You're like, no, no. So please, we're gonna throw this guy overboard, but please don't hold us guilty. And so verse 15 they do it. They pick him up and they hurl him into the sea. And what happens? You kids know the answer? The sea becomes still, it ceased from its raging. We almost expect the text at this point to jump to Jonah because he's the main character, right? I mean, the book is titled Jonah, but it doesn't follow Jonah. Look at what it follows. Look at verse 16. After they tossed him into the sea, then the men feared the Lord. They feared the Lord, ESV, exceedingly. What a great translation not a little their fear of God was great remember how Jonah had said that he fears Yahweh and he couldn't see the truth and yet here these pagan sailors are fearing Yahweh greatly and they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and they made vows. And as you read through the Old Testament, those are, are, are actions that are taken by God's people. They, they're sacrificing and keeping vows to, to Yahweh. You say, well, where did they sacrifice? Was it on the land? Was it on the ship? We don't know, but they did it. Of course, the boat was pretty wet, but they sacrificed. They have turned in faith to worship this great God who is over all the nations. See, Joan is not the main character. The sailors are not the main characters. Do you know who the main character of the story is? It's God. It's not the fish. <laughs> he, he's he's a side character. We'll get to him next week. I'm not gonna go into verse seventeen. God is the main character of the story because it's God who has spoken the judgment to Nineveh. It's God who has called Jonah to action. It's God who is pursuing this prophet. It's God who is making himself known to pagan sailors. It's God who is worshiped in the end. It's God whose purposes will not be thwarted as we will see next week. And ultimately, It's through Jonah's disobedience that salvation comes to pagan sailors. Isn't that crazy? More people have come to know Yahweh through Jonah's disobedience than if he had just obeyed and gone to Nineveh. That is so hopeful for you and for me. Because Jonah has failed as God's mouthpiece. He has failed to speak the truth. He has failed to take what he knows in his head and to let it come out in how he lives, how he loves, how he interacts with people, pouring yourself out for the good of your enemies. Remember the words of 1 Corinthians 13. I think they ring true here. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but I have not love, I am nothing. What good is all the knowledge if it's not working itself out in love? That is how we are known as Christ's. And for Jonah, he failed. But we fail in all the same ways. And God knows this, and he still passionately pursues his people. How? How does he pursue us? We who are a group of Jonas, he pursues us through the preaching of his word. He pursues us through our daily pursuit of him and his truth, through submission to him and to one another in his body, through the leaders that he's given to shepherd us and to walk with us as we battle for truth, in a world filled with a multitude of truths, half truths, and lies. But God pursues us through one much greater than Jonah. Did you know that? See, in all the ways that Jonah failed, there was a greater prophet, and he would not fail. And this greater prophet would leave his home and would go into the world filled with his enemies. And these enemies wouldn't just reject his message, but they would slay him. They would kill him for his message. And he goes to them and he perfectly obeys God and he speaks God's truth, and he does God's will, and even as he journeyed and found himself on a boat with his disciples, because I'm speaking of Jesus, the storm came not because of disobedience, but because Jesus was following his Father. The disciples were caught into this storm not because one of them had sin, none of them needed to get thrown overboard. No, the storm came to show the power and the glory of God and to show the majesty of the Son of God who alone could stand and speak peace. And the storm ceases because he would overcome the curse of sin, the curse that even creation is groaning under. Remember Colossians 1, in Christ, all things are through him and for him and in in him all things hold together whether it's a boat caught in a storm I'm, I'm, I'm kidding but not whether it's our own lives it's in Christ the atoms in the universe the stars all around us it's through Christ and for Christ and right in our story these sailors were saved and please understand this They were saved not because Jonah was sacrificed. Do you understand? They didn't receive salvation because Jonah died. Every sailor on that ship deserved death. Every sailor on that ship would die eventually, whether it was on a boat, in water, or on land. They will die, and there was a much greater judgment than a storm. Yes, that storm was specifically connected to Jonah. But they all stood under the same greater judgment of disobedience and sin. They were saved not because Jonah would die, but because a greater prophet, who is the Son of God, would come and live a perfect life, would be crucified, would shed his blood, would take the wrath of God on himself, would bear the judgment that we deserve that Jonah deserved, and that those sailors deserved. They were saved because Jesus would come and die. Jonah will be saved because Jesus will come and die. And that is good news. Jesus overcame. Listen to Romans 5, verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? Because Jesus didn't stay dead. He conquered death. He rose and he reigns at the right hand of the Father with all authority in heaven and on earth. Nothing happens on earth apart from his sovereign hand. Nothing. He reigns over all of it. And he is at work in the nations and he is at work in our midst. No matter where you are or what you've done, God is the pursuing God and you cannot hide from his presence. You cannot thwart God's purposes through your disobedience. Because he is the great redeemer of all things. Now, Some of us here have suffered because of our sin. And some of us here have suffered because of the sins of others. Some of us have suffered simply because we live in a fallen world. And it's natural for us. We want to say like the sailors, right? Whose fault is it? I mean, really... They should have been like, it's probably my fault. I mean, you know. um, Whose fault? Or like Jonah, we say, we want our justice against those people. Instead of recognizing we are those people. We all stand in need of grace. I love the story in Luke 13. Lest you walk away thinking in every bad situation that every bad situation is connected to a person's sin. This bad thing is happening because this person did this. Jesus confronts that in Luke 13. And he says, of this tower that fell and killed 18 people, that's a tragedy. Jesus said, do you think that they were worse offenders or worse sinners, those 18 who died in the tower collapsing? Do you think they were worse offenders than all others who lived in Jerusalem? Right, because we want to say, well, yeah, surely one of them was. And Jesus says, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish, right? Because there's a greater death and a greater judgment. Like they collapsed in the tower, but not because they're worse sinners. That is a call for all of us to repent. And the story of Jonah comes to us not to point the finger at Jonah, but to say, what about us? Where are we self-deceived thinking we're good? We've got it. We've got it all up here. We need God to expose. Where are we failing to live out the calling of God and what he has commanded us to in Christ? I battle with that. Being back from Uganda where it was so clear, my role, my calling, I loved it. I'm here going, oh Lord, you have us here. I trust your purposes. I just can't see. Seems like a storm. He says, trust me. And this story gives me such hope. You know what? It also gives us hope because we realize whatever people intend for evil, God intends for good. For those who have suffered because of other sins, and the sailors, they were suffering because of Jonah's sin, and yet God had great good. They couldn't see it. Not in the midst, but God worked it out unto good. He purposed it for their good. We learn that right from the story of Joseph. Betrayed, sold to slavery. And he's able to tell those brothers what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So God pursues, he brings circumstances, he brings people. He brings his word as a mirror to reveal what we desperately need changed in us. And as we come to Jesus, as we bring our disobedience, our struggles, our confusion, our questions, our struggle with why, all of these things, Jesus speaks right into it. And he points us to the hope of the gospel. And he speaks peace. He says, My peace I give to you. I can't give any of you peace. I don't have that power, but Jesus does, and he speaks peace as we submit to him, as we offer ourselves to him, and as we rise up, and as we take this gospel into these nations, as we're a part of this work right here in Hurricane, Uganda, Russia, Ukraine, because he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. We're part of a great story, my brothers and sisters. And how amazing that God has so clearly revealed himself to us that with confidence we can follow and we can obey. We can you pray with me. Father, Lord, I'm thankful for a story of a renegade prophet and pagan sailors that I can see myself in, that we can see ourselves in, and yet that we can so clearly see Jesus, and that you're the sacrifice that was their salvation, that their sacrifices were received by faith because of the greater sacrifice, that would fulfill them. And that, Lord, in whatever place we find ourselves, you see us and you know and you are at work. So, Lord, would you reveal what we need to see, what we are blind to ourselves, and that your word would work itself out in love and good deeds. As we follow you, as we submit to you, as we live out your word, thank you for your work and that you will use all things for the glory of Christ and the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.